stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're sharing a story from the Wheeler Centre's program, Signal Boost, which aims to elevate new voices and new ideas in Australian podcasting. The following story is an investigation of the inter-country adoption process in South Korea. What are they hiding? What are their motivations? Why would they need to hide that stuff? You know, why would adoptees who have already reunited with family still struggle to get access to their files from the agency when the agency's rationale for not giving files is we're protecting the privacy of your original parents? If you've already found them, why are they still hiding your files or prohibiting access to them? Since the end of the Korean War in 1953, over 200,000 South Korean babies and children have been adopted overseas under the nation's inter-country adoption program. These children were mostly adopted to white families in Western countries like the US, Australia, Denmark and Sweden. 2023 marks 70 years since the beginning of this practice. Many of these adoptees, like Ryan Gustafsson, who you heard from just before, are now adults and they're asking questions about the events that have quite literally dictated the course of their lives. The first formal step I took was in August, back in 2015, when I approached the Department of Health and Human Services in the state of Victoria to contact the adoption agency on my behalf. I was adopted through Eastern Child Welfare Society, now called Eastern Social Welfare Society. In February 2016, Eastern Social tells me they have no medical history to give me, no more information on my birth mother's situation at the time of my birth, no current information on either parent. They also say they've started a search for both of them. At the end of March 2016, Eastern tell me they found an address for my birth mother and that they sent her a telegram, but she hasn't responded. About six months later, they get in touch with me again, telling me my birth mother hasn't responded to the second letter they sent, and hence they have to close my case. Ryan spent most of his childhood and teen years living between countries and cultures with his adoptive family. As an adult, he has questions around not only the circumstances of his own adoption, but of the systems and practices that enabled it. The adoptions of Korean children like I said, started during the war period. Um, These were predominantly mixed-race kids of Korean women and U.S. or European military personnel who were deemed by the South Korean state to not really have a viable future in Korea. And I think because they had U.S. parentage, they were also seen to be the responsibility of their biological fathers who were predominantly U.S. servicemen. But the origins are as I said, kind of complex because 
It also emerges out of a long history of volunteerism in Korea, so lots of sort of charitable organizations, Western aid organizations. There was sort of metaphorical adoption of Korean orphans as mascots for like sort of military units. You know, there's like news articles of them quote unquote adopting as a mascot, like a, a little Korean kid. A common route to becoming more critical is a very deeply personal one. It's a personal one of looking through what you have to figure out, is there anything here that I can use that could lead me to more information or to a person or whatever? When you start to question, well, why don't I know? Why can't I know more? Then you start to see that maybe there are obstacles in your way that aren't natural obstacles, right? They've, they're put there or they've been placed there. I understood what happened to me as a story about a young woman who found out she was pregnant after breaking up with her boyfriend and who felt that inter-country adoption was the best option for both herself and her child. And then I started hearing stories about Korean adoptees and their experiences with the birth family search process. I learned that many Korean adoptees discover that something in their file is incorrect or misleading. For Ryan, it was the numbers rather than the stories that first caught his attention. For him, the numbers just weren't adding up. There were 8,837 Korean children adopted to Western countries in 1985, the year I was born and came to Australia. That's about 736 children per month, or one child an hour. That really put my so-called individual story into perspective ceases to be a personal story of individual misfortune and the inability to keep a child told over and over and over again. It's the story of an industry. Early 1970s, less than 1% of Korea's national budget was allocated to social welfare. And adoption actually saved them money, and in fact made money for the South Korean government. Right, The government would not have to pay for any welfare for that child anymore for the rest of their lives, and they would actually receive adoption fees and donations per child. The further he got into the search process, the stranger things seemed to become. When I went to visit my adoption agency in Korea and was coached by an adoptee organization that has helped a lot of adoptees search, for example, one of the tips is if your agency worker is halfway through what they call a file review, which is when they show you a binder full of your stuff, and they say, oh, I need to go to the bathroom, or I need to go out for a second to talk to someone or take a phone call, that's a signal that you can take a photo of your file. Or you can even look through the binder. And that's, like, what are they hiding? Like, that's really, one, that's really problematic that your level of access to information is reliant on the particular agency worker you happen to get on that day, maybe their mood, maybe how generous they feel like being. For many adoptees, finally accessing their records only leads to more doubt and more questions. Here's where the cracks start to show. For example, Ryan tells me that the Korean Intercountry Adoption Program is globally considered to be the quote-unquote Cadillac of overseas adoption programs one of the most efficient and above board. But Korean adoption records routinely contain discrepancies that are too big to be purely accidental. What we've started to see is that as adoptees have gotten older and started to share the stories that they see in their records, one, you start to see that the story is always the same, which is a bit of a red flag. And two, 
with increasing numbers of adoptees being able to find their original families, we can also start to chart how the original family's testimony is very different and their circumstances are very different to what's written in their files. Based on what's written in their files, many Korean adoptees believe they are orphans. But it turns out that orphanhood, in this context, isn't necessarily what it seems. I think for those who have found family, I think it's incredibly distressing to hear, for example, that your Korean parents did not provide informed consent, to hear that, you know, it's sadly pretty common, like you hear about one of the parents coming back to the agency the next day to say, I made a mistake and I want this child, I want to take the child back. And the agency telling them it's too late, they were already sent overseas. And then upon reunification, the adoptee can say, no, I was still there. I wasn't adopted till I was five months old. So here's what we know so far about what many adoptees find out once they finally access their documents. Falsified facts about their own origins evidence to suggest that their birth parents did not provide informed consent, and evidence that parents were denied the right to reclaim their children from agency care. So when my parents adopted me, all of my records that they received, with the exception of one paper, indicate that I am a legal orphan with no identifiable parents. But as I've been digging into my adoption story over the last few years, I have found that not only is that not correct, but there was likely no consent given by my biological parents for the adoption in the first place. This is Mary Bowers, another Korean adoptee and a world-ranked competitive eater. I don't think within my own family that my first family separation or grief was ever even acknowledged. I think the belief was that I was too small to remember or be affected by it. And so I learned very early on that it made people uncomfortable, so we just don't talk about it. So I, I think I resented the fact that I, I was not able to grieve. I think especially holidays, uh, birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day were especially difficult for me. Um, I would go and sit in my, in my room by myself and cry. And nobody would acknowledge that that was probably a very natural response. If I asked about, well, which mother am I celebrating on Mother's Day? I was criticized for ruining the holiday for my adoptive family. And then of course, because that wasn't what my parents invested into as part of the adoption system, I think there was a fair amount of resentment on their side as well, because you know, they, they thought they were getting this blank slate baby, and, and that's not what they got. Mary reminds me that the adoptee community is not a monolith, that everyone has a different journey and a different experience. But for her, the obscured facts of her adoption have left a mark. My adoptive parents did not know the truth. They couldn't give it to me themselves. Uh, but I don't think we were set up for success um, on any level because of that That lie and the enormity of the lie that they were given um, and then passed on to me. The view of Korean intercountry adoption as an under-regulated and profit-driven industry seems well-founded. But where to from here? A proper reckoning would involve looking into systems and practices that stretch back 70 years and implicate thousands of people. (laughs) 
You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Are you interested in creating your very own audio story? All the Best is dedicated to supporting emerging storytellers. You don't need any experience, just enthusiasm. If you're interested, get in touch with us at allthebestradio.com. A warning to listeners, part two mentions trauma and abuse. You are here to witness history today, ladies and gentlemen. There is no bigger stage in all of world sports. You will talk to your children about this. Their children will talk to their children about this. They film it from Smile City, USA, Mary Bowers. So I've been a world-ranked competitive eater for the last 11 years. I I went for what I thought was a local eating contest, and it turned out to be a qualifying event for a final round that was broadcast in 14 countries. A few months later, I had a contract with Major League Eating, and here I am today. (laughs) During the coronavirus pandemic, when Mary's stadium event slowed down, she saw an opportunity for reflection. She moved to South Korea, where she searched for information on her adoption. In my adoption research, my case research, it, it's been speculated that some of the adoption homes only fed children who had deposits placed on them. And there was a very high starvation and death rate in some of the adoption homes. So I've started wondering if what people are actually witnessing is is not necessarily just skill and ambition or drive that's self-generated, but maybe they're seeing this bizarre, massive trauma response. Um, and so I don't like having that cloud on something that has otherwise been very positive um, in in my life. But I, I think now that the question is there, it's it's probably never going to go away. I did some research on abuse and mistreatment in the system. To be clear, the information I found isn't necessarily about Mary's adoption story or her adoption agency, but rather part of a bigger picture. I also found a quote-unquote vagrants facility in Busan called the Brothers Home. This home was found to be part of the inter-country adoption pipeline, supplying children to private adoption agencies. Supported by the South Korean government, the detention centre operated in the 1970s and 80s with the goal of removing so-called vagrants from the streets ahead of the 1988 Summer Olympics. But thousands of adults and children were rounded up arbitrarily and subjected to harsh treatment. In an ABC Australia article, I read that the Brothers Home was found to have routinely kidnapped, enslaved and abused both children and adults, even if they had identifiable homes or families. More than 650 people died at the facility. From documents obtained from officials and freedom of information requests, the AP uncovered direct evidence that 19 children from the Brothers Home were adopted overseas, as well as indirect evidence of at least 51 more adoptions. 
Ryan says the 1988 Seoul Olympics are generally considered to be the first time that wider South Korean society was made aware of mass intercountry adoption, but he's skeptical about this. I don't think that you could have 200,000 plus kids leave the country and not have it impact, you know, a significant amount of Korean families and extended families. We believe it is of vital historical significance that an investigation into Eastern's overseas adoptions be launched and that Korea's Truth and Reconciliation Commission is the appropriate body to carry this out. What you've just heard is a historic moment. It's a press conference held by representatives of several Korean adoptee groups who've made submissions to have Korean intercountry adoption investigated by the South Korean Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC. Back in, I think, beginning in August of 2022, Korean adoptees began filing a series of claims with the Korean government requesting investigation into human rights violations uh, that occurred during their adoptions. And from August to December, nearly 400 adoptees from 11 different countries around the world um, submitted claims to a government body in South Korea to request investigation into, I think, a series of 56 separate categories of human rights violations as defined by the UN. Um, And so I was one of those adoptees and uh, our cases were grouped together based on the adoption agency and country of origin, or I guess the receiving countries that we were all sent to. There were four private adoption agencies who were licensed to carry out inter-country adoptions from South Korea. Korean adoptees from all over the world have come together to ensure their submissions include the practices of all four agencies. A group of 16 American and Australian Korean adoptees have come together to make a submission, based on the fact that they were all adopted via the same agency. They have called themselves the Australian-US Korean Rights Group, or the OzKRG. Mary and Ryan are both members of this group. I asked Ryan what his group hopes the investigation will involve. We particularly want the commission to investigate our agency. We want them to, you know, determine whether there was any kind of criminal activity on behalf of any of the directors or the agency staff from our agency. I would be discouraged if at the end of the day, this was seen as 372 cases of unfortunate circumstances around individual adoptions. I would really like them to view it as, yeah, an indictment on how the the overseas adoption system worked as a whole. As well as investigation of the system, Ryan hopes that individual cases will also be looked at, particularly those whose situations are the most distressing. We have a couple people in our group who were sent with the paperwork of the wrong child and subsequently reunited with the wrong family. For for cases like that, we would want compensation for their original families and for the families that they were falsely reunited with. This is a long journey, but the first steps have been achieved. In June 2023, the OzKRG received confirmation that their submission, along with several others, has been accepted by the TRC. This means that all four adoption agencies will be included in South Korea's investigation. They are aware that this is a widespread practice. It's not that they're suspicious that it happened. It's that they know that it happened, right? And I think that has opened the door to them also investigating a whole host of other irregularities and illicit practices that we've identified.
hungry and let's eat as they get started while also you know Mary Bowers now headed from Seoul, South Korea. And it's almost very, very well. Mary has a pretty big public profile and she's using it to her advantage. Why not just make the most of a time when cameras and press are already following me around and um, use that as an opportunity to get the story out. And so I set the goal of eating 16 hot dogs and buns in the 10-minute time period, one to represent each of the adoptees in the claim. Bowers joined the Australia-United States Korean Rights Group, which is part of a bigger movement and petition spearheading efforts to have Korea's overseas adoption system investigated. Five, Down to the four, final seconds. That's the unofficial total right now. Well off 50. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen. Mary did not win the competition, with the winner putting away 39.5 hot dogs in 10 minutes. But Mary feels it was a win for adoptee advocacy. I was able to uh, get the story into the national headlines. I, there were some uh, local publications that, that covered the story. Um, and then also, uh, because of their distribution streams, it's, it's reached the, the national press. Ryan believes the next step is investigation by the countries that received Korean adoptees. I think if the U.S. were to launch an investigation, Australia would have to really sit up and take notice. That's probably the next step, is to kind of leverage what's happening in Korea to say, look, these suspicions are well-founded enough that the country really responsible, that holds most responsibility, is willing to investigate itself. And therefore, don't you think that as a receiving country who participated in this practice, who may not have known everything that was going on, but yet engaged with this for decades, don't you think maybe there's some questions that we need to ask here? And the outcome of the TRC investigation, Ryan says, could have enormous implications for all other intercountry adoption programs. The adoption program that has been held up as the most efficient and the most ethical and most above board and the Cadillac of adoption programs, if that program is seen to have had systemic ethical issues, that must have a widespread impact right, on all other adoption programs and all other adoptee communities. In the liminal review of books, Ryan writes, searching can too easily be enlisted to serve a fantasy in which there is a lost something that can be recuperated. Recourse can only ever be limited, and restoration is never fully possible. I was keen to hear from Ryan. In this context, what would justice even look like? I don't necessarily want like an overly legalistic form of justice. If it's uncovered that, that people engage in criminal activity, I think they should be identified and we should know about it. I think that should definitely be part of it, but I wouldn't want that to be all of it. The reconciliation side of it is harder, right? Because I think it depends on the truth that's uncovered. And I think it depends on the willingness of the TRC to make publicly known what they find. I think justice would look like a proper collaborative effort on behalf of not just the Korean lawyers, the TRC, Korean scholars, Korean adoptee communities, but also broader Korean society to really kind of take seriously and incorporate this part of their history into their understanding 
of what Korea is and what Korea has done and what Korea could be. I think for too long it's been viewed as a family issue or, or an individual family issue, which of course it is, but it's so much more than that. And so I think I would really hope that it is viewed and perceived as an opportunity for a broader societal reckoning with this practice. For Mary, justice isn't possible without the truth, which she feels has been withheld for far too long. I would just like to see more honesty and transparency. If we don't confront the pains of the past, then we can't heal the pains of the past. And I, I think that's the critical piece. And and so as this investigation is playing out, I, I think the thing that I'd like to see is is just you know, an honest investigation and honest account of what actually occurred, who was responsible, and, and a lot of why. Why is a very big question and I think an, an important factor. And then we can figure out where do we go from here. At this stage, there are still more questions and answers, and there's a long road ahead. Ryan and Mary and their communities will be grappling with difficult questions and truths for years to come. But there was something Mary said towards the end of our interview that changed how I thought about the adoptee journey and what others might learn from it. In absence of of biological family, not just Korean adoptees, but I would say the adoptee community as a whole um, is searching for family and not just in the biological sense, but I think just in in terms of, of connection with humanity. And I was I was traveling and... I was in the city where a lot of my documents point to, but I was looking, I realized I was looking at every single person on, on the subway thinking, well, what if that's my dad? What if that's my mom? What if that's my brother? What if that's my aunt or my uncle or my grandpa? And at first it's crazy making. It's not a healthy mentality. It's not a great way to live. And then I realized, wait a minute, how different would the world be if we all looked at everybody that way? That's my cousin. That's my sibling. That's my grandparent. How differently would we treat each other? The OzKRG is a small group with minimal funding. If you can support them with Korean language translation, help to navigate legal systems or other creative ideas, reach out to them at auskrg.com. That's auskrg.com. They'd love to hear from you. If you're a Korean adoptee who has concerns about your documents or adoption, please reach out to them as they're continuing to build their evidence base. That story was produced by Kelly Bartholomews. Mentoring support was provided by Karishma Luthria. To listen to the full story, head to wheelercenter.com slash signalboost. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal Land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and Boon Wurrung lands and 8 C 
on Arande and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun, and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.